I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I've invited Lori Karp, a child psychiatrist from Palm Beach County in Florida, to join us today to talk a little bit about the notion of autism and the autism spectrum disorder. The reason that I'm asking her is because she's had so many years of practical experience in dealing with these issues. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Good to see you. When does a parent begin to worry that their child might have autism? Is it something that's seen very early on in childhood? Is it more of a developmental issue? Is there any sort of rule of thumb about when a, when a parent should say, uh-oh, we might have a problem? I think it depends on the parent and how much experience they have. Oftentimes, we're surprised when we see someone who's picked up relatively late. We always assume that the parent should have picked up a qualitative difference in the socialization, eye contact, that there's something different about their child. But a new parent Every baby is unique. Every new parent has their own way of reading their child. And sometimes they just think that's how their baby is. That's how all babies are. Unless you've had a comparison, someone who doesn't have a lot of siblings, hasn't had babysitting experiences, that may think that that's normal. But usually, relatively, you know, by age year and a half or so, most babies are pretty interactive. Play peekaboo games, make eye contact, giggle, interact socially, have a warmth to them and 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 someone with one of the autistic spectrum disorders might actually show some oddity in this? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there are really three main points in the autism spectrum. And it is a spectrum that goes from very mild to very severe. Obviously, very severe, it'll be picked up. There'll be major behavioral issues and the baby will be irritable and not make eye contact and not have any babbling and you know verbal things. And also with autism, the IQ interacts with the, the autism. Someone with a higher IQ may be, be picked up later because they can seem more normal at the time than someone with mental retardation concurrent with autism, because they're not synonymous, obviously. One of the things... Go ahead. I'm so sorry. No, I was going to say, just the autism is a difficulty or a difference developmentally in how they communicate socially, which is eye contact, verbal, how they use pronouns. They may... And it's hard because certain toddlers and young children have certain autistic type behaviors that are normal for toddlers. What do you mean by it's interesting, how they use pronouns? That's really intriguing They maybe will like talk about themselves in the third person or mix up genders. They'll say, Johnny wants toy instead of, you know, instead of give me toy, they'll say, give you toy. And again, certain language things like that are normal developmental things for certain kids that they just outgrow it. But there's sometimes an oddity about self-image, their relation to other people as the other severe autistic kids will relate to other people as if they're a piece of furniture, inanimate, don't have feelings, as if they were relating to the family dog, the couch, the so it raises a bunch of questions, actually. Obviously, something like this can be very distressing to a family. What does a parent do? Is there an intervention that they can do before they see the doctor? Do they need to teach the child to talk differently? What What about the frustrations that may come on a parent's heart? What I happens? Think, I mean, the first thing is recognizing it is the first step. Because again, a parent, it, there's a lot of denial you don't want to see that there's something wrong. I think most parents may have a gut feeling their child is different, not as friendly, but a lot of people rationalize and don't want to see a disorder the same way as when you have a physical symptom, you ignore the headaches for a long time. And it's hard for us as physicians to say, how did this go on for so long without you getting treatment for it? But I think parents sometimes will minimize it 
if they have a gut feeling something right, they might say, my baby's just shy, my baby's just quiet, they'll develop it. But at a certain point, you know there's a clear difference between your child. Again, if it's far along on the spectrum, if it's mild, a lot of PDDNOS, which stands for pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, are just kids who are intelligent and a little bit compulsive and maybe just have some odd quirks, but function pretty well. And it's, just, you know, and it's a very mild version. Right now, the statistics are showing that 1% of all U.S. children aged 8 years or over have some presence of an autistic spectrum disorder. But when is it just that the odd kid, we were talking about this the other day, how do we separate it? Are we over-diagnosing this? I think, as with anything, you want to try and see how does it interfere with the person's functioning, meaning there are some people who have very restricted interests and aren't very social and may have some language issues and are very intelligent. And it's very hard to find the spectrum of where does it become PDD, NOS, where does it become Asperger's syndrome, where does it become just a college professor who loves physics, is involved with physics, you know, doesn't have many friends, has some oddities, but functions well in the world and was never diagnosed. Again, with the younger kids, I think it's being diagnosed a little bit more frequently. I don't necessarily think it's a matter of overdiagnosis, just better recognition. I think pediatricians now are very good at the different monthly checkups, knowing by six months you should have this many words, you should be doing things. And I think pediatricians, teachers is more publicity and and information about it. So people are knowing to look, are the children reaching the developmental milestones? And I think in terms of how does a parent get treatment, depending on where they are, the county, things like that, most counties will have some kind of early intervention systems where they'll come usually free of charge and do a language evaluation, do a social evaluation. The pediatricians usually have a sense because they're exposed to so many children that they'll know usually better than a mother looking at her own child sometimes there's something different. We want to keep an eye on this. And they may say, all right, by 18 months, by 24 months, and probably language is the first thing that's picked up. When does it then go past the pediatrician and there's a call to you, a child psychiatrist? What seems to be a level or a barrier or an obstacle that can't be dealt with in a pediatrician's office? What would be a typical reason to call a child psychiatrist? Usually, again, as with any disorder, just as ADHD, it's how much is it interfering with their functioning. If the child is autistic, is getting frustrated because they need things a certain way, they need sameness, or they don't like spontaneity, or they're sensitive to noises or textures, and life doesn't go according to their plan, which it never does does, they may get agitated, they may scream, they may knock their head against the wall, they may have outbursts and be irritable, and they can't express why other than things aren't fitting in their schema and it's making them upset. They may not be like the typical kid in nursery school. They may be sensitive to noises, changes, changes in their routine. And so when the pediatricians will refer it out, probably, if it's a mild developmental thing, the kid is a little sensitive once in a while, they'll say, wait and watch. If the kid is really very uncomfortable in situations, can't make eye contact, can't interact, can't speak, you know, can't speak. I think pediatricians and and all professionals and parents and just general society knows that early intervention for speech therapy, behavioral therapy makes such a difference because you're doing it during a real plastic time in their life and you don't want to start speech therapy at age 10. You want to do it as quickly as, as possible so they get the benefit for the number of years and catch them during the developing periods. It, it also sounds like there's a, um, a flavor of it that's like obsessive compulsive disorder. They're stuck on things. Kids who are autistic present like OCD. They like 
like sameness. They have repetitive, stereotypical behavior. Someone with OCD may have an unpleasant thought, a worrisome thought, and do something compulsive to try and neutralize that thought. Well, if I count to 10, this bad thing won't happen. If I you know, do these certain things, this bad thing won't happen. I think kids who are autistic, they may not express it as clearly verbally, but it may be something's making them uncomfortable in their environment, just like the OCD person is anxious about a germ or something bad happening to a family member. And then the autistic kid may respond to that feeling uncomfortable. They may respond by inappropriately by screaming or banging their head against the wall or running away or hide, covering their eyes or something like that. But they're overly sensitive a lot of times to things that you and I wouldn't necessarily be sensitive to. So there is a little bit of a compulsivity because it's repetitive, which is common with OCD. And it's a little bit inflexible, rigid, and changes are very distressing where some people are very temperamentally go with the flow. If you change where you're going out to dinner, what time you do things, it doesn't bother them. They're very laid back and that's an easygoing temperament. Kids with autism usually will have more of a slow to warm up temperament or what's called a difficult temperament. So a minor change that would be no big deal to you or I might really set them into a panic or something like that. The seams in, you know, their gym socks, you don't even think about it when you tie your shoes in the morning. Kids like that may focus on sensory things and the tags in their shirts may bother them. And So it's just not being picky. You know, I can see someone saying, my kid's just picky and temperamental and argumentative. It's not that at all. Not real. I mean, I guess maybe on the mild end of the spectrum, that's may, maybe how it presents. But the there's a qualitative difference in the way they interact with you, a lack of kind of a warmness and empathy and interaction, a need for other people sometimes. On the whole, is treatment successful for these folks? Can we control it? Does it get worse as someone gets older? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, with early intervention, things get better. You can only, you know, the treatment there are so many different areas you can treat. So certainly with language and speech, generally they will get better, but you never know how far they're going to go. Some of it has to do with have they gotten a lot of intensive treatment when they're young and what's their top capacity? If they're limited by IQ, they're only going to go so high. But I mean, I think speech and intelligence are two big prognostic factors. You know, having involved family and a good social system and a school system all working together, the ideal would be you want to combine early recognition and treatment, a lot of intensive speech therapy, social skills training to kind of if it doesn't come naturally to them how to socialize, social skills group where they're actually taught how to socialize, they're actually told, don't talk when other people are talking, make eye contact, wait till people are done talking to join the group, don't get into somebody's personal space. These things don't come inherently to these kids. They need to be taught it as a skill. You raise an interesting question, which just occurred to me. It may very well be that a lot of kids who have mild cases of social phobia could actually be an autism, autistic spectrum disorder child. I, I'm saying that purely out of the overlap of what you just talked about, the social inhibitions and fears. Yeah. Although one like important question to distinguish that sure. is, is you want to kind of add, kids with social phobia wish they could be more social, recognize that their anxiety is okay. excessive and say, I, I would love to be able to ask somebody to get together on the weekend, but I'm afraid to I get nervous every time I do it. Whereas a kid who isn't interested in socialization, it doesn't particularly bother them. They don't even see it as an issue. It's not, I'm not good at it and it distresses me, but I would do it if I didn't have these anxiety symptoms, as opposed to it doesn't even enter my thought that I would need other people. As someone who's suffering from autism doesn't doesn't feel it then in the same way as someone who has an anxiety disorder, or, or am I being too simplistic to say it like that? No, 
I think they're not aware of it as a deficit in themselves. It's more apparent to the people around them that they don't socialize very well. A lot of autistic kids are really very content within themselves. They can sit and play by themselves or rock or self-stim or something like that. And they're not missing that the other kids aren't calling them for play dates. I mean, what happens with kids who are high functioning and intelligent and have a bit of insight as they get old, you were asking before what happens as they get older sure. and you know what's the course. Sometimes as the kids get older, almost a depression will set in because when they get to be 13, 14, and they're intelligent and they're verbal, they kind of have the insight to have a recognition. I'm different than the other kids. The other kids may see me as, as odd or I know I'm different and it makes me sad. But there is no one, you know, a lot of these questions you're asking, there is no one thing as an autistic kid, so to speak. There's such a big variability in the spectrum. And that's why they call it a spectrum disorder. Right. So what's the difference then between someone who has autism and someone who has Asperger's? Um, Asperger's is considered kind of the, quote, high end of the spectrum. I think educated parents who are, are following this would almost, it's a preferable diagnosis almost because kids with Asperger's are seen as kids who have high intelligence and have good verbal skills. And, you know, as I said before, those two are the big prognostic factors. So Asperger's kids kind of you know they're a bit off, but they can function very well, and they actually can socialize and have a small group of friends, but they're kids who are just slightly off. A lot of the Asperger's kids are, are almost like pedantic. They almost lecture. They're very smart. They may know everything about a certain topic, but not be able to get off the topic. You know, they may have a sense of humor and like to socialize a little bit, but just be a little bit off in the way they do it. Something they think is funny is just misses the point, kind of. Asperger's, you know, if the IQ isn't, you know, normal to high, it really probably wouldn't be called Asperger's. And it's kind of the milder end of the spectrum and more can fit into society a little bit better, I think. And one of the things, and as I hear you discuss this, I hear you're struggling with where to place these things. But one of the notions underlying why there has been apparently a rise in the number of kids in our society with autism is that in 1994, I did a little research, in 1994 when the Diagnostic and Standard Manual version 4 came out, it began to change the criteria. So maybe years ago it wasn't defined in the same way as it is now. Well, classic autism, like, you know, Canner's classic autism yes. was probably the low-functioning autism. And with more behavioral disturbances, a lower IQ, less frustration tolerance, things like that. Whereas when they kind of started calling it a spectrum or PDD-NOS, not otherwise specified, more of a you know garbage can container, then you can say, well, this isn't, cla you know, a lot of people would say, well, this isn't classic autism. They can interact with me from time to time. They can do things. But now that it's PDD-NOS, a lot more things, it's a lot more of a broad category than a classically autistic. And it may change a little bit again when we get the next set of diagnostic criteria. And there are also, besides diagnostic, in terms of treatment, in terms of funding, in terms of educational classification, there are some times when if you fit the criteria and you have the diagnosis, they may get you a different set of resources. And it would almost, it can sometimes be beneficial if you're categorized that way because it lets you get certain accommodations, let's say, or be eligible for state funding or certain programs. So it's kind of a catch-22, not that you want your child to have a diagnosis, but if they're close, terming it, giving it 
the number, the category may actually open some doors for them in terms of services they're eligible for or educational opportunities or funding or, you know, a number of different. Do we know if there is a specific risk for this? Does it it run in families? I think as with most spectrum type disorders, first of all, I think it's unclear. It's not specific. There have been, as with anything, I'm sure there are certain genetic things that have been postulated to be affected with autism. I know some people feel mercury and vaccines because, and that may be true, although the majority of children get vaccines and don't become autistic. But I think it has also to do, some people believe that it's because at the time it's picked up is right around the time when you're starting to get your vaccines developmentally. A number of things, food, there's as many theories as there are physicians. A lot of people do diet, you know, have wishful thinking or think it's dietary. They've used secret and they've used medications. They've used gluten-free diets. They've gotten rid of what red dye number five, whatever, you know, things like that. And every once in a while, things like this anecdotally will work for certain people. But Which I don't... confuses people because they right. think they found and, something. And a parent that really wants to be hopeful and think, well, we can do this this way. If, if we only do this, this will be fixed. If we only don't immunize our kids, they won't get it. I, I think it's different. But getting back to your question, I think there is a little bit of a spectrum of the family. You know, of kids I've seen sometimes not, I don't think it's, a, it's clearly not a direct genetic thing, but I have definitely seen kids on the spectrum where there are relatives, either another sibling that may not be even PDD-NOS or spectrum or Asperger's, but maybe will have something that's won't meet criteria, but is a little bit odd socially. You may have an autistic kid and a parent who was never very social, is a little bit odd, was never picked up, but you sometimes will see some similarities or traits. Well, you've given us a very large number of things to think about, and I think one of them is if there is some oddity in a child's development, and if you have any question, it needs to be brought up to the attention of the pediatrician rather quickly. And the other thing which I think is fascinating is that the autistic or the autistic spectrum child is not that uncomfortable with the condition, and it's the people around him who see it. Lori Carp is a child psychiatrist in Palm Beach County, Florida, and she was kind enough to sit with us this evening to discuss some of the major issues in how one begins to look at autism, some of the concepts, some of the, some of the challenges that she has when she has to treat them. Lori, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.